All of the newest episodes of Note to Self are now available on the Luminary Podcast app. It's free to download, and you can also listen to other podcasts from WNYC Studios like Radiolab, Two Dope Queens, Snap Judgment, Here's the Thing with Alec Baldwin, and others. Luminary Premium is the only place where you can enjoy the entire new season of Note to Self, plus new original podcasts you won't find anywhere else from Trevor Noah, Roxanne Gay, Guy Raz, Lena Dunham, and many more. And you can enjoy them ad-free. Start your free trial by going to luminary.link slash note to self or download the Luminary app for free. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Manoush, the host of New Tech City. And these days, the holidays are filled with gifts of unnecessary electronics. Who needs that cell phone from last year? And in that spirit, we bring you a show about waste. And actually, we've got a few ways to prevent waste, to harness those leftovers of all stripes, from the steam in your radiators to broken cell phones. We'll even follow the path of a discarded TV to see where it takes us. The main contents that we try to take off first is the aluminum, battery, and you can see like some of the platinum. This is, after all, New Tech City place where we want to upgrade to the newest phone, but we also recognize that that might not be the best thing for the environment. How to reconcile that? Haven't we met before? We have met before. Well, once in a while, I get invited to interview smart people with big, important titles or formerly important titles. Good to see you. You too. That's me hanging out with Al Gore at the Mashable Social Good Summit a little while back. He was there giving a hopeful speech about technology and democracy and the planet. And I figured he must have some good ideas on how to love the earth and technology at the same time. Here's what I'm wondering. How do you reconcile being up to date with your gadgets and cool and having the latest iPhone with understanding what needs to be done about climate control? Because technology and global warming, how, how are they being linked in your mind? Well, I think, honestly, that the new, of course, as you know, I'm on the board of Apple, and so um, you should take uh, my enthusiasm uh, with a a grain of salt uh, because I'm on the board, and I'm a huge fan of Apple as a a company. Ah, things getting slightly uncomfortable here. The former vice president switches tack to the main topic of the speech he just delivered. But that having been said, let me answer straightforwardly that I really, honestly, deeply believe that the new digital communications technologies and particularly widespread access to the Internet offer one of the greatest opportunities we have to reinvigorate democracy, reclaim our ability to make democracy work the way it's supposed to, and fight back against the fact that our democracy has been hacked by special interests. So uh, I'm a big fan of empowering more people to use the Internet and, and to become active in a move. What, what, what should we call it? Occupied democracy. Ah, fine idea and a catchy brand, too. Totally on topic to his speech, but not exactly what I'm asking about. 
I try to get us back on track. But how do you square that with the fact that to be so communicative and to get the message out there, a lot of it is keeping your phone up to date or getting the newest one. Where do we start to draw the line in terms of how we curb either our gadget buying or, I mean, it's a funny one for you, too. Like you well, said, you're not, on the board of Apple, but yeah. also really speaking yeah. out about climate change. Yeah, sure. And you and, and as, as I say, you, you will take my comments with an appropriate grain of salt. Okay, so at this point, he gives me the clothing company Patagonia as a good example of a brand that gets this whole consumer conundrum thing. They've got ads that say, don't buy a new jacket, even though they sell jackets. And so basically, he doesn't see this as a phone problem. It's a shopping problem. It's the consumer economy uh, generally. And I've written about this in my book, The Future, that came out earlier this year. Did I mention my book, The Future? Tell me about your book. Seriously. Seriously. I do think that that uh, consumerism is a legitimate issue. Uh, I am a fan of the new iPhone. It's a square peg round hole. That I don't think it has to be. I do think that empowering more people is seriously one of the ways to make democracy work the way it's supposed to. I kind of felt let down by this exchange. But, I mean, honestly, I'm not really sure what I expected him to say. Don't update your phone unnecessarily. Pay a carbon penalty if you do. Apple should design a completely recyclable phone? I guess I just really wanted to hear the expert on environmentalism tell me if he thinks it's good or bad to always be buying the latest iPhone, even if the old one works. Or even if the old one doesn't. Nobody fixes anything anymore. Really? We do. Al Gore, Apple, meet Justin Wetherill a guy who helps people stop the cycle of constantly upgrading their phones. That's one of his TV commercials. I mean, we have people pay more for a pair sometimes than their phone is worth, and we'll tell them in the store, but they're like, look, I just want my phone back. Justin is the founder and CEO of You Break, I Fix. So You Break, I Fix, that must mean you're kind of a handy guy, right? And a few years back, your phone broke. This is this. – I've seen a lot of people have this actually. The glass on the iPhone, it kind of cracks, right? So you sure. figured you could buy the parts online and just swap out the shattered glass. Yeah, being a techie person, I thought it was that easy. I ordered the parts online only to find out not only did I order the wrong parts the first time, but then when I finally ordered the correct parts, I actually broke it worse myself. And, you know, it was at that point I said if I can't do it, then there must be a bunch of other people who are in the same boat who can't do it either. And so – what happened then? So a light bulb went off for you? Yeah, so a light bulb went off. I ordered a bunch of broken phones online. So I said, you know, I'll just make the initial small investment. I'll order a bunch of broken phones on eBay. I'll order the parts and, you know, I'll get proficient at it that way. I ordered six phones that initial time. So by the time I'd gone through those six phones, I'd pretty much figured it you know, the, the bulk of it out. So you started with six phones. And where are you now? Where's the business now? Right now we fix 20,000 devices a month. 20,000 devices a month. How do these people get their phones to you? So we have 60 walk-in locations throughout the country right now, um, everywhere from Los Angeles, Chicago, New York, Florida. I mean, you said something interesting. You said that they're walk-in places. Why aren't people, like, shipping them somewhere to get them fixed? I feel like that's what everybody does these days. Well, that's one of the things we realized pretty early on, is if, if you spoke to the average consumer uh, these days on a Friday, you know, afternoon after work and said, hey, I'm going to take your right arm this weekend or your phone. What would you rather? Uh, most people would say take my arm <laughs> as long as there's no pain involved. So they're coming in and what are they like? What are the most common problems or complaints that you get? 
So, you know, of course, cracked screens, um, then there's water damage, uh, charge ports being broken, batteries not lasting as long as they used to. How much typically does a visit to one of your stores cost someone, and how long does it take to fix it? So most of our repairs, we like to price between 80 and $100, and the average repair takes between 30 minutes and an hour. So a lot of people, a lot of times people will drop off their phone and go to lunch or drop off their phone and go shopping and come back real fast. I feel like a lot of the younger people I know, they're just going to upgrade anyway to the next model. What's the point in getting it repaired? So a lot of people enter into two-year contracts, and they can't upgrade in the middle of their contract. So when you buy a phone in an AT&T as a consumer, you don't always realize that when you pay $199 for that new iPhone, that's actually a six dollars or $700 device. So then two months down the line, when you break it and you go back to AT&T, you know, they're going to tell you to replace a device at six or $700, not $199 anymore. And that's why people get them fixed, because they're stuck in those contracts. I mean, you know, I, we live in Brooklyn, um, so you, we obviously have people who are, like, really into composting and recycling and all of those things. And yet these are the same people who will go and get the latest iPhone and upgrade, despite the fact that their other phone is completely fine. Are you finding that more people are sort of thinking – okay, I need my consumer habits to jibe with my lifestyle habits. It's time to repair my phone, not just always go buy a new one. Well, I think a lot of times people, um, they, they like the things that are in their phone, the way their icons are set up, the pictures they have, the contacts they have, and they don't always just want to start over with a new phone. You know, of course, you can back up and restore and do things like that, but it's uh, not exactly the way your old phone was. And some people just get comfortable in their old old phone and want to keep it, even if it doesn't make sense. I mean, we have people pay f- more for repairs sometimes than their phone is worth, and we'll tell them in the store, but they're like, look, I just want my phone back. Okay, Justin, thank you so much for your time. <laughs> thank you very much. Justin Weatherall is the CEO and founder of You Break, I Fix. And that's the letter U at the start. Okay, it's New Tech City, and this is our recycling show. And let's say there's just no repairing that sad lump of metal that once connected you to your loved ones and all things online. Or maybe it's not a phone. Maybe it's a flat-screen TV gone bad or a digital camera with ridiculously slow shutter speed. All right, stay still and... Cheese! Oh, no, your eyes were closed. (sighs) Again? Yeah. The average U.S. household has about 28 electronic devices. I actually counted 31 in my house if you included headphones. I didn't think we were that bad, actually. So altogether, we create over 2.5 million tons of e-waste each year, and only around a quarter of it gets recycled. And when it's not recycled, there's the risk that the toxins inside, which include lead, mercury, cadmium, they can end up polluting groundwater or the air. But of course... Not you. Oh, I know you recycle. And as you exchange gifts with your friends and family this holiday season, no matter what your religion, I ask that you share your belief in disposing of your e-crap responsibly. Convert your loved ones by telling them this story about reincarnation. It's a story about what actually happens when you recycle. From our friend, reporter Tracy Samuelson, who joined an old computer as it made its journey to rebirth. It's an old gray gateway computer tower, Pentium 4, Windows XP, recently put out to pasture by the New School in Chelsea. 
The school has gathered over 750 pounds of electronic waste, or e-waste, for recycling over the last two weeks, and they've hired a company called Fourthbin to collect it. So four big hooking computers weighing at 129, 129 pounds. John Kirsch is one of the company's co-founders. He picks up e-waste for recycling in a rented U-Haul, and depending on size, charges between $10 and $125 per item. I mean, you can tell how old they are. The gateway's been out of business for five years now. The end of the gateway starts with a truck ride to Fourth Bin's storage facility in Harlem, then on to the warehouse of a company called We Recycle outside the city. There, it joins a graveyard of TVs, printers, faxes, phones, miles of tangled cables and cords. First stop, the harvest department, where disassembly technician Robert Marcial starts tearing it apart. Now, inside, it's uh, main contents that we try to take off first. It's the aluminum, battery, the hard drives, and also the CPUs. You can see, like, some of the platinum actually shining and glistening. When he's done, the computer is just a sad shell. Supervisor Carlos Jorge knows it's the end of the line for our gateway. That's where it gets cut. That's our uh, twin shaft shredder. It'll break it in half to three-quarter pieces. Ready? (laughs) From here, the chewed-up pieces are sorted into bags of metals, plastics, and circuit boards. Each will be sold to another recycler, who will melt them down and make new gadgets and devices. The whole cycle will start again. Good karma indeed. Our thanks to Tracy Samuelson for explaining how recycling our electronics actually works and actually letting us recycle that story, which we aired a long while back before we even launched this new podcast. And by the way, we've got one update to that story. We Recycle has changed its name to Hugo Noy Recycling. Okay, so, so far on our show about recycling and waste, we've talked about phones, we've talked about electronics, but what about the old-fashioned technology that maybe we take for granted, like radiators? If you don't have central heating, then you most likely have a hulking piece of metal in your home, like me, and chances are your radiators are constantly wasting energy, spewing out unneeded heat, never giving you that Goldilocks moment when you feel just right. But our producer, Dan Tucker, found a startup that's working on a high-tech solution to this low-tech problem that might even save us some energy. Hi, Dan. Hey, Manoush. How are you? Okay, so, Dan, this is when the weather starts to get colder and those old metal radiators start acting really finicky. Too hot, too cold, and they also start doing this. So relaxing, isn't it? Oh, yeah. You found someone who can fix this banging. Yeah. Actually, I went to visit the founder of a tech startup here in the city called Radiator Labs. And this guy, Marshall Cox, has created a a device that solves many of the problems created by those old metal radiators you were talking about. He's devised, uh, kind of created and built from scratch, really, an enclosure. It's, It's kind of an insulated bag that you place over the radiator. And then you can regulate how much heat comes out into the room. So basically you're putting your radiator in like a big Ziploc. Sure. It's not made out of plastic, but you could call it a Ziploc. It does pretty much slip over the top of the radiator. Um, And there's several temperature sensors in there. Um, There's a fan connected to that. Those sensors communicate via wireless radio with a web interface. So you can actually change the temperature in the room through this web interface and control how much air comes out of that bag. So this sounds really great, but I mean, those pipes, they get piping hot 
And isn't there a concern that it would catch on fire? I talked to Cox about that. He said the the bag has a flame-resistant cover. It's not going to melt or burn no matter how hot the radiator gets. And inside the bag, there's insulation that's equally heat-resistant. I mean, it's a pretty simple idea. It's a, a glorified oven mitt and a fan that's controlled with pretty simple electronics. I like that, a glorified oven mitt that pretty much, <laughs> pretty much encapsulates it. You just slip it over there. Some of the other systems in the past have tried to hack the steam heat system, um, but Cox isn't really tinkering with the pipes or the boiler or trying to re- redirect steam even. The big difference between our system and others is that we control how much heat comes from the radiator to the room as opposed to how much steam gets from the steam system to the radiator. And it's much, much easier to control hot air than it is to control a 100 degrees Celsius gas. Okay, so what actually happens when the temperature inside the radiator enclosure, the Ziploc bag, reaches that magic temperature? So, yeah, you you heard him mention a 100 degrees Celsius gas. So when the steam in there hits 100 degrees Celsius, it's just impossible for any more steam to come into the radiator. Thermodynamically impossible, according to Cox. Um, Instead, it'll just then flow to the other radiators in the building. So it could go to your upstairs neighbor, for example. Okay, so... I mean, Dan, maybe people don't realize, but in cities, if you do this, you know how much you hate it. You're sitting there in your living room. It's so hot. There's nothing you can do about it. So you open your window on a cold winter's day. There is nothing that bothers me more than just watching the heat go out the windows. What a total waste. So if it's a big energy savings, then maybe this is kind of a big deal, no? Yeah. um, Cox thinks his device could save building owners 20 to 30 percent in energy costs which would not just cut down on bills, but potentially cut down on pollution, too, because that would mean turning the boiler on less frequently. Um, he estimates that increasing energy efficiency by that amount would be the equivalent of taking 100,000 cars off New York City streets. Wow. Um, there is a little bit of bad news. Uh, you can't buy this product yet. It's still in beta. Ah, there's the rub. Okay, so what's going on with that? He's right now testing the Radiators Labs bag on about 110 uh, radiators up at Columbia University. This is a project that came out of a PhD project uh, at Columbia. Um, so it's not exactly clear on when it will be available for residential use, but right now it's being tested commercially. Okay, so I'm going to have to wait a while to be able to potentially solve this problem. Yeah, you hear that banging and clanking there of the radiator. Um, <laughs> Cox says it, it will actually solve that problem, but it won't solve this other problem that you may know of. Oh, no, the dreaded hiss. <laughs> yes, the hiss, the hiss. The other sound that can come out of your radiator. Now, that comes out of a steam valve, and sometimes that valve is outside of the enclosure, depending on the model, um, depending on what that radiator looks like. So it's not always going to solve the hissing, but it could muffle it a bit. All right, so winter may never sound the same. Dan, thank you so much. Thanks, Manoush. Okay, so we hope we made you feel righteous with our show on recycling and waste. And if you've got any other tips on ways of cutting down on waste or e-crap, as I like to call it, we'd love to know. Go to NewTechCity.org. I'm Manoush Samarodi, and I'm giving thanks that you just listened to our podcast. Have a great week. A little closer to the mic. A little more in the mic. So you get the real click, he said. All right. Okay. You can just add this in later, though. That sound okay? All right. Okay. Good. All right, we've got it.